This episode of Motley Fool Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, the bro, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Greetings. It's the August Mailbag, and Abby Malin, Motley Fool Analyst, joins us as we ask the deep philosophical questions like, what if everyone bought and held their stocks? What do we wish we knew when we had started investing? And do dividends suck or what? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Abby, have you been on the show before? I feel oh, like you have. Yes, she I think has. I've done it once or twice. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it was obviously a super memorable experience for all of us. <laughs> I remember it. Uh, but we have. But I know that we have been for a long time in our planning meetings. Been like, I wonder if Abby could do it. I wonder if we could get Abby in, and we did. You're kind today. of a rising star. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. The peak <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah, the rest of your foolish career is gonna go downhill from here. I'm afraid this is it. Uh, so thank you for joining us. How did you come to The Motley Fool? I don't know if um, our listeners are going to be familiar. So I started as an intern, and I found it through a professor at school. I was graduating. I actually had a different job starting in August. Um, and I was a finance major, but I was struggling to figure out like what I really wanted to do with that. Um, so I had a job at a traditional sort of financial role. And my professor was like, you're going to like this better. Take this internship. I've already put it in a recommendation. Get your application in by midnight. And so it was kind of like a random, I was like, I'll try it and see if I like it. And so um, I started and then I never left. (laughs) So you were glad? Are you glad that you took this job instead of the other one? Oh, we're yeah. glad you did, too. Oh, thanks. Um, all right, well, we're going to go through... How many questions are we getting through today? Eleven! Eleven. All right. Honor of Stranger Things. Not let's, really. Let's do it. Let's do it. First one. A company pays out a dividend, and then the stock price goes down by the amount of the dividend. So, the dividend is worthless, surely. In fact, you're losing money as you have to pay taxes on the dividend. What am I missing? From Andrea. That's Andrea. Well, Andrea, you make a very good point. Now, I wouldn't say a dividend is worthless because anything that pays you cash is worth something. Plus, with a dividend, dividends are taxed at lower rates than ordinary income or interest from bonds, and they tend to grow at a rate that exceeds inflation over the years. So they're not worthless. But the main point is valid in that a dividend isn't a free lunch. So if you think of a company has a certain amount of cash on its balance sheet that's factored into its valuation, then it pays a $500 million dividend doesn't have that cash on its balance sheet anymore, so the price does have to adjust downward. I would think of it this way. So let's say you bought a stock for $50, and then over the next year, it generated $2 per share in earnings. And then at the end of that year, it distributed one of those dollars as a dividend. And the price will adjust, say it goes up to 52 pays the dividend, and it goes back to 51 You're still ahead of the game, right? Because the stock price has gone up. You do have that cash, and what most people do with that cash is reinvest it and buy more shares of that stock. So you're accumulating more shares, which will gradually pay more cash. So I don't think it's worthless, uh, and the price, but the price does adjust. Um, there are people who think dividends are not the best way to use cash. Some people think that buying shares is a more tax-efficient way to do it, like a company will buy back its shares, reducing the share count, therefore, therefore increasing earnings per share, which increases the value of the company, and you're not taxed on that because dividends are not very tax-efficient. Warren Buffett is a big fan, as we all know, of keeping the cash at Berkshire Hathaway, 
doesn't pay a dividend because he thinks he can use the cash in ways better than just paying out as a dividend. Personally, I think it makes sense to have a combination of both stocks that don't pay dividends and then do pay dividends. Uh, just coincidentally, I was looking today at like which stocks trade ex dividend. Ex dividend means that's the date from that date forward where the next dividend you won't get paid. Theoretically, that's the day when the stock price should adjust. Stock that's trading ex dividend today on August 7th is Starbucks. It's going to pay a 36 cents per share dividend. It's down 23 cents today. The crazy thing is the market itself is down almost 400 points. So Starbucks has gone down a little bit, but it's not gone down as much as the market. Next question comes from Dylan. I'm 27 years old and have been investing for over two years now. I've become fairly confident in understanding how the market works and have bought in fully to the long-term buy-and-hold philosophy that David and many other fools teach, but can't seem to shake an odd thought that is apparently lodged in my head. If the stock price of a company rises and falls based on simple supply and demand principles, wouldn't the entire stock market flatline completely if every investor followed the foolish philosophy? Put another way, if everyone simply stopped selling their shares and instead became buy and hold investors, wouldn't the market experience a dramatic upturn and then eventually stagnate as all outstanding shares are purchased? So, I think this is a really good question, and I think the thinking here is correct. So, prices are determined by supply, which is selling, and demand, which is buying activity within the market. But according to a BlackRock study from October 2017, less than 18% of the stock market is owned by index tracking investors. So, this is what this tells us is that passive investing plays only a very limited role in equity prices. So, um, this includes mutual funds, ETFs, institutional accounts, and private investors that track an index. About 26% of the stock market is owned by actively managed hedge funds, mutual funds, and institutional accounts. And then 57% is held by governments, pension funds, insurers, and corporations. So, what all of those numbers tell us is that the majority of the market is actually made up of non retail investors. So, these players have to manage their funds with alternative incentives that can never actually align with a buy and hold strategy for the long term. So, um, some of those reasons could be clients withdrawing money for um, education or buying homes, things like that. Uh, clients making monthly contributions. So, think every paycheck you put a little bit in. Um, also, stipulations about what type of investment they can hold and the minimum level of returns required. Um, and these often shift. So, with companies' quarterly reports, it may or may not then meet requirements and certain um, funds are required to sell. So, um, think about like a small cap fund that has to sell a stock when it exceeds a certain market cap, or an index tracking fund that must rebalance to mirror the index's weighting, things like that. So, I think even in the event that everyone invested foolishly, we would continue to see volatility and price corrections in the market just because the majority of market volume is actually not controlled by retail investors with the ability to make that choice. Yeah. And when we talk about buy and hold, we're talking Three, five years. Right. We're not necessarily talking like buy a stock and never sell it. That'd be fine. Right. But like, how, how about you? Well, I'm not maybe not going to look at you, bro. But how often do you think, how many stocks do you think, or how often do you sell stocks in your investing career? I so sell far? very rarely. I think unless there's a big thesis shift, I tend not to sell. Um, I do look at adding to positions or sometimes ignoring positions in certain circumstances, but I don't sell very often. Yeah, I don't think I've ever sold a stock. No, but I think while we talk about buy and hold, the 
ultimately, you're buying a stock today so you could purchase something in the future. Most for most of us, that's retirement. Right, but it could wealth. be right. But it could be some of the other things you mentioned, going to college and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So at some point, we're all going to sell something, right. and, and and that is going on right now today. Right now today, there are retirees who need to sell stocks right. in order to create some cash so that they can continue to live in retirement. And that's always going to be going on. Plus, the market is set up in such a way that there are specialists and market makers, You know those people you see on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Their job is to provide liquidity. If everyone is selling, they have to buy. And if everyone is buying, they have to sell. Now, they're allowed to adjust their prices so that they make a bit of a profit on the, on the bid-ask spread. But that's their job. They're required right. to provide liquidity. So it's set up so that if you want to buy or sell something, there's someone out there who's willing to engage in that transaction. All right, next question comes from Vijesh. While somewhat bleak, your episode on home buying was very informative. However, I'd like to hear more about owning versus renting. For example, if I rent a home for $1,000 versus making a mortgage payment of $1,000, should I not be coming out ahead if I own the property? If I budget an extra 150 for repairs, after 30 years, I will have either paid 360000 in rent or 414000 to own the home, but then I'd have an asset I could sell or live in for free afterwards. So, comparing the, the long-term costs of renting versus buying and factoring the home equity that you build up is definitely the right way to think about it. Um, so, I think he's on the right track. I, I would tweak, it, tweak his math a bit. It actually gets kind of complicated. So, just on the renting side, you might supposedly just have rent and maybe renter's insurance, but that's not a whole lot. But the tricky part is that both of those will go up with inflation, generally speaking, every year. So, if your rent is $1,000 a month this year, in 10 years, it'll be over $1,200 a month if inflation is 2%. So, that keeps going up. Owning a home is more complicated. Uh, that $1,000 mortgage payment, if it's just principal and interest, that's going to stay fixed, actually. It's going to be $1,000 this year, this month, and 10 years from now, and 20 years until you pay it off. So, that's good. Everything else will go up with inflation. That's maintenance, insurance, and property taxes. So, and then the other factor to, to include while just comparing the monthly payments is if you own a home, you might get some tax benefits. If you atomize, you might be able to uh, deduct your uh, mortgage interest and your property insurance. That's only if you itemize, and these days only about 12 to 15 percent of people do that. So, that's how you compare the costs. But then you have to compare basically the equity or the assets. So, on the, in favor of renting, you have to think if you buy a house, you have to put down a down payment. And when you put down that down payment, that, money, that is money you can no longer invest. Another aspect is, generally speaking, you are paying more per month to own than to rent. And this example is $150 more a month that he gave. So, that's if you were renting, you could invest that $150 a month in the stock market. And so, that's other ways of building up equity. So, when I have ever decided whether am I going to buy a house or rent a house, I've created a spreadsheet that incorporates all of these things, including the buildup of the equity in the house, which comes from a, paying off the mortgage gradually, and b, the increase in the home price. Ideally, it goes up. Most home prices do, but not all the time. Um, so, I have done that. Fortunately, there are many calculators out there on the internet, as well as just free spreadsheets that have all this done for you. So, if you really want to look at all these details, I highly recommend you just use a few of them to do the analysis. All right, next question comes from Pete. 
I'm a new fool and I'm interested in beginning my journey buying individual stocks. Now that I've maxed out my <laughs> retirement savings each month, I recently joined Stock Advisor to assist in picking some stocks to purchase. Right now, I have 14 stocks, all receiving an equal portion of my investment dollars. Is this a good idea, or should I allocate more money to better performers each month? Doing that, however, seems like I'd be buying when a stock is high, as opposed to dollar cost averaging my portfolio. Is my investment strategy too egalitarian? I think this is a good question a lot of people struggle with. And I think, you know, when you look online or at various resources, um, a lot of advice will tell you how to manage very large accounts, but there's not a lot of information about how to sort of grow from zero to very large. So um, I think it's a fair question. And I think the pro to the solution that um, our listener has chosen here is that you're achieving diversification pretty quickly. So, 14 stocks is obviously more diversified than buying one at a time. So, um, that would be the benefit of this strategy. But now that you have this base, I would really encourage you to think more about weighting your stocks to reflect your personal conviction levels rather than reflecting the current price. So, um, I think around the fool, we talk a lot about how decisions based solely on valuation tend to be wrong. So, you're either catching a falling knife, which means you're buying something because it's cheap, or you're avoiding high flying winners. So, the one that a lot of people talk around here is Amazon. Like, if you ever um, were concerned about, you know, oh, I'll buy it on a dip, I'll buy it on a dip, you almost never bought Amazon, probably. So, I think the better way to frame that question is really thinking about future expectations you have for each of your existing holdings, and then asking yourself whether you feel like you've appropriately weighted the risk and return amongst these 14. And then, on top of that, I would encourage you to add as many stocks as you feel comfortable holding. So, um, depending on how much you add every month, it could take a couple months of allocating to get a new position to a size that feels adequate relative to like what's already in there. But I think that's okay. Um, I just I think. The bottom line here is that there's really no wrong answer in how to do this. Um, there's pros and cons to each approach. Um, but now that he has this base, I would encourage to think a little bit more broadly. The only thing I'd add is we've talked before about keeping an investing journal. So as you do this, if you're going to say, like, I think these three stocks are better this month, next month's another three, uh, write that down, write down the reasons why track your performance and, and get an idea of whether you have a good knack for this or not. And if it turns out you're not doing such a good job and you have to give yourself a good three years or so. But if you're not then maybe go back to doing the equal weighting. All right, next question comes from Don. I've read many articles about Social Security and the benefits of waiting until 70 or whatever the full retirement age is for a person versus taking Social Security earlier at 62. I keep seeing the dollar totals for one retirement age versus another. My question is this, does the math include the cost of living adjustments? I feel like this could change the argument a little. What Donna's talking about is basically this. If you take Social Security at age 62, you'll get a lower monthly benefit, but you get the money sooner. If you delay, you'll get a bigger benefit, but then you have to wait. So many articles will compare how much you would have at certain ages based on when you claim Social Security benefits and come up with basically a break-even age. Generally speaking, that break-even age between age 62 and 70 claiming is around 80. And the, the basic idea is if you die before 80, it was better to take the money sooner. And if you die after 80, it was better to delay. Um, but the po- and the point Donna's making is that every year your benefits do go up every year for inflation. Um, and he's saying he's wondering whether that is factored into these analyses that he reads about. And I can't answer each individual analysis for him because I don't know. But I think he's smart in, in saying that that should be factored in. So you shouldn't just figure in how much you're getting 
this year in inflation if you claimed it this year, but make some assumption of how much it'll go up each year for inflation. All that said, I don't think the break-even pay the break-even analysis is the way to do it. And the Social Security Administration agrees with me because they used to have a break-even calculator on their website and then they took it down because it was leading people to make misguided decisions. I think it's better to get a more sophisticated tool. There are several that are free on the internet. AARP has one, Financial Engines has one. There's also one called Maximize My Social Security. It actually costs $40, but I think it's worth it because it factors in all kinds of scenarios um, and gives you basically a range of when you should take your Social Security. And I'll just add, uh, there, there are other studies that have looked at look, what's the ideal age to claim Social Security, and there's a recent one that came out from United Income. It's entitled The Retirement Solution to Hiding in Plain Sight. Basically, it looked at 2,000 scenarios, real-life scenarios of folks when they should have claimed, and they basically found that 57% of all retirees would have been better off if they waited till age 70, and that only 8% would have been better off taking between 62 and 64. So generally speaking, it does pay to delay. Thanks to NetSuite by Oracle for sponsoring today's episode. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Chances are, if you're a business owner, you have a hard time wrangling your numbers. You have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts your bottom line. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. This business management software handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com fool. That's netsuite.com fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com fool. Next question comes from David. Looking back, what are questions you all would have liked to have asked back when you were just beginning as investors but didn't know enough to think about? I also have a second question. Is there an easy way to involve children in investing and communicating on their level? So, I think one of the most valuable tools I have when thinking about companies is really breaking down the economics of the business. And for me, I like to just think about this really simple mathematical equation, and it's revenues equals price times quantity. So this works for all businesses across all industries. And once you start thinking about businesses in these simple terms, you can kind of ask yourself the right sort of insightful follow-up questions, um, again, across any industry. So, what has driven prices up or down in this industry in the past? Do I have reasonable insight or expectations about those factors going forward? Um, is it reasonable to assume existing customers can buy more quantity? If so, how many? How frequently? Which begs the questions of useful life, things like that. So, um, I think the reason that this is really helpful is because it's applicable, again, to all industries. So, everything from oil and gas to consumer goods to um, you know, really anything you want to look at. So, um, if you think about Starbucks revenue, what goes into that? It's the price of an average drink and the number of drinks that they sell. So, um, on price on that side, you're going to see, you know, what's your cost of your inputs? How much does it cost to make a Starbucks drink? And what's their margin on that? Can margins go up or down? Are people going to be willing to pay more or less for that? Um, 
the thing that Starbucks has going for them is that it's highly convenient, so that gives you a little bit of space for a higher margin. With that being said, competition's increasing, so that could decrease your margin. And then on the flip side, you have quantity. So, um, how many cups of coffee are you selling a day? This is, again, locations. So, how many cups does each location sell? Um, how many cups does your average Starbucks person drink a day? And can you increase that frequency? I think we've probably all, I would say, seen that probably go up. Um, but I think it's really a question of, can that trend continue? Do you feel confident in that? Um, just being really, really basic about it. And then the more you ask those questions, you can kind of like dig deeper and deeper. So you're not necessarily like grabbing numbers and plugging them to, into your equation. That's just your framework for how you think about yeah. the company. Mm-hmm. Like more qu- qualitative with a bit of quantitative in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, what about involving children in investing? Do you guys have any thoughts about communicating on their level? Um, so I am a part of our Fool School effort here at the Fool. So we have started a program to educate kids K through 12 about investing. Um, and I think we have a website. If you go to foolschool.com, I think you can sort of see the lesson plans there. But um, I think one of the biggest benefits you can do is really talking to your kids and um, explaining, just making them financially literate, familiar with terms like savings and interest and um, compounding growth. I think you know those are really complex. Uh, Issues and I don't think a lot of kids have exposure to them necessarily at an early age because adults assume like you won't understand. Mm-hmm. But then by the time you're in college, you're taking out loans and you are paying interest, and interest is compounding, and you're not sure really what to do with that. And um, so, I think the earlier you start speaking to them in a financially literate sense, the better off they're going to be. So this this is funny. This just happened yesterday. Um, Hannah, our six year old, she goes to Six Flags every Tuesday with her camp. I don't know how they do it, but they do. And this was the last trip, right? So this was the last (laughs) trip to Six Flags, and so they're like, "You can give the kids money. We're going to let them buy something," because they've been whining all summer about not being able to buy something when they go to Six Flags. So okay, so so um, my husband's like, "Okay, here's ten dollars. I'm giving you ten dollars, Hannah. If you." Manage to not spend this ten dollars. I will turn this into. I will double your money when you get home tomorrow. I will wow. give you twenty dollars if you manage not to spend this money. And so she was like, "Okay." You could see her little brain, her little cogs turning because she really wanted Dippin' Dots. And so she's like, "Oh, okay." And, she, and, and she, we had to explain to her a few times. So she's like, "So wait, what?" So if I go and I buy Dippin' Dots and I come back, you're gonna give me twenty dollars? We're like, "No, no, 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 no. You got to come back." Can't break these. Come back with this. These two five dollar bills, and Dad's gonna give you twenty. So anyway, so she goes to she goes to Six Flags. I go to pick her up yesterday, and I'm like, so what happened? You know what? Did you spend your money? And it turns out that at Six Flags, the cash register was broken, so they just gave her dip and dots for free. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so she's got her little Ziploc bag with two five dollar bills in it and she's like do you think dad is still gonna give me the twenty dollars i was like well, i don't know you're gonna have to talk to him and so so this morning I, I was overhearing them she was giving him the news about how she so she like shows him her bag and it's got the two five dollar bills and ron was so proud he's like oh you didn't spend the money wow that's so great and she's then she's like i'm pretty sure she like debated in her head do i tell him i got different dots for free or not and i actually i didn't hear that part of the conversation so i don't know if she fessed up to get free dipping Dots, but That's amazing. That yeah. is so funny. But he, like, we have, she has her savings account, and Ron sits every time she gets her statement, he sits down with her, That's and great. he says, "Look, you made 
like 50 cents. But still, he's like, that's 50 cents that you made. And she's still like, she still doesn't quite get what's going on there. But at least they're exposed you know, to it, exposed to it and, and talk about it a lot. And we talk about we talk about how we get paid money for our jobs. And that's how we get money to buy her nice things. And um, we just try to talk about money a lot. I don't know. Well, I think that's that's probably the most important thing you can do, just so they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's also like not the most intuitive. Like I feel like my family wasn't like that. Like we never talked about money growing up, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just not supposed to. I don't know if they do it in other cultures, but in America, you just don't talk about money. Right. That's so gauche to talk about money, right? Yeah. Oh, it's gauche to say gauche. <laughs> you can also talk about companies and like, hey, you you love those toys. You, you know, who who made that and. I know. I find my kids respond a lot to um, the idea that you can own a little piece of that company, and isn't that fun? And hey, kids yours, love yeah, Disney. yours are older, right? So your kids are. I started around nine years old when yeah. I started talking about this yeah. stuff. Hannah's still like Hannah. It's a bit too young at six for Hannah to understand that you can own a little piece of the company. Um, I tried once, and that was just that was rough. <laughs> Maybe it, it, I started just by just by like. Going to Starbucks, hey, you know I own Starbucks. You know, yeah. you're, like, mm-hmm. you're gonna yeah, have fun with it a little too. bit early mm-hmm. on, yeah. And then they start asking questions, and you can go from there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only thing I'll add is, David, we did a whole episode on this almost exactly a year ago. So go back to the August twenty first, two thousand eighteen episode. Share the love investing. We had a couple of folks talk about how they taught their kids about money. Very instructive, I think. Yeah, we also had Jason Moser on too to talk. If you Google Jason Moser and kids, you'll find a lot of stuff he's talked about getting yeah. kids investing. And also, if you jump back to, I think it was around November of last year, uh, Rule Breakers had two very solid episodes on starting your kids investing. So if you go to the RBI podcast, um, there's great information there as well. Cool. All right, next question comes from Brett. You almost never hear, save up your money and buy a home with cash. I understand with mortgage interest rates around 4%, you can usually do better by investing in the stock market long term, which I currently do. But one thought I had was to trade my current bond exposure in my retirement accounts for stock exposure. I would then sell an equivalent amount of stock in my retail account and apply that to the home loan. In essence, I would replace the bond portion of my portfolio for home equity and a guaranteed 4% return quotes, by paying down the loan. I would take a risk-free 4% return versus bond exposure any day, and my portfolio would still have the same overall exposure to the stock market. Thoughts? Well, Brad, I, I like your general thinking here, um, why, which is basically why have money in low-returning, safer assets like cash or bonds that are yielding one, two, three percent, and then pay a loan that's charging you four percent? Why not use that those low-returning assets to reduce the debt? And it's certainly my goal to be debt-free by retirement. I've talked before about when you go into retirement with debt, that increases your expenses, which means you have to take more from your retirement accounts, increases the chances you'll run out of money, and increases your tax bill. So my wife and I do send an extra payment each month to our bank so that we pay off the loan sooner. Um, Just a couple of things about your particular strategy, though, is that if you're going to sell stocks in your regular retail brokerage account, um, that will likely have tax consequences. So the bigger those tax consequences, the less I like the strategy because you are going to have to give up some of that money. Also, you're swapping basically the equity exposure that you have in your brokerage accounts, which I assume is mostly individual stocks, 
for the equity exposure in your 401k, which for most 401ks is they're just stock funds. Some 401ks do allow you to buy individual stocks, like we do here at The Fool, but the majority don't. So you have to decide, is it worth giving up those investments that I can get in my brokerage account for the funds that I have in my 401k? Um, and that's just the decision you'll have to make based on what your options are there. But generally speaking, I like the idea. Finally, a note about bonds in general, and I know nobody likes them, and we've talked about why they are low-returning assets, generally speaking. But let's look at the performance of stocks versus bonds over the trailing 12 months. So this as of the close of market on August 6th. Over the last year, S&P 500 has returned 3.1%. That might be surprising to people because they think the stock market has done so well this year, and it has. But you may remember that at the end of 2018, it didn't do so well. The Vanguard Total Bond Market Index Fund has returned 9.5%. So over the past year, bonds have actually significantly outperformed stocks. Because, I mean, the stock market has been up and down. Right. As for the bond market, interest rates have come down considerably. Like, so a year ago, the 10 year Treasury was almost at 3%. Now it's at 1.7%. And when rates go down, the prices of bonds. Go up. All right, next question comes from Isaac. The recent market volatility has created a good problem for me. Several stocks on my watch list have dropped significantly. The problem is that I have little cash on the sidelines to take advantage at the moment. I want to purchase one of these stocks in my IRA. I'm 24 years old, so I have a long timeline. What is the best way to separate the wheat from the chaff? Um, and then Isaac goes on to list a number of stocks that he's interested in. So I think the first and major point I want to make is that good on you for having a watch list. I think this is really one of the most useful tools for investors, especially at the beginning of careers. Um, I keep one. I have a lot of stocks on mine. This is my job. I look at companies all day. Um, so obviously, there's only limited capital that you can put in every month. So I think this is a really good strategy for doing that. Um, I think there are really three main questions you want to ask yourself before you think about adding any of these. The first is, what does your portfolio look like right now? So, um, you want to think about exposure to one industry, either overexposure or underexposure to an industry. And if you're lacking, do any of your watch list stocks sort of fill that void to create a little bit of diversification, um, sort of reduce your overall volatility exposure? Um, the second question you want to ask is, how do these companies stand in comparison to current economic outlook? So, for example, right now, markets are um, very high, debt is extremely cheap, the labor market is extremely tight. And so, if any of these factors were to change, which of these companies would do better and which would do worse? And I would encourage you to buy the ones that you think stand to benefit from a reversal of current economic trends, because those are the companies that are going to retain value in the inverse of today's situation. And then my third question I think you should ask yourself is how are each of these companies performing ignoring market conditions? So, um, one of those stocks on there was a biotech. And I think a good question to ask is you know, is this company about to release something that could cure cancer and thus make the overall outlook and growth of the stock much higher in the future? Or is the company experienced a transition in management, maybe adding to market doubts and depressing current stock prices? So, any of those factors can make something sort of um, bubble up to immediate priority versus remaining on a watch list. So once you evaluate each stock by these three questions, I think you should sort of prioritize your list. And obviously, priorities change as conditions change, but um, keeping a sort of prioritized list is really one level up of just a watch list. 
Our next question comes from Twitter. Looks like Dr. Holsey. My wife has a rollover IRA that came from her previous 401k. We knew she could combine it with her traditional IRA, but recently learned she can combine it with her current 401k. Does that have any benefits? The first thing I would say is not every 401k allows you to do this. It depends on your plan and whether they will accept um, rollovers, rollovers from a previous plan or rollovers from a traditional IRA. The benefits of doing so are you might have a 401k that has extraordinarily good investments or extraordinarily low costs. So you might, in many ways, 401ks, because they are bigger, they have access to lower cost funds. The other benefit is just that you have all everything in one account. It's a lot easier just to keep an eye on it. Uh, the reason why you wouldn't do that is if your the 401k that you currently have is not a particularly good plan. You're not all that excited about the investments themselves, um, or if you want to invest in things that are not offered in the 401k. And here, generally speaking, it's individual stocks. Like I said previously, most 401ks don't allow you to do that. Um, you might like other types of mutual funds that are not available in your 401k, so you have a lot more flexibility by just keeping it in an IRA. All right, next question comes from John. My family bought me Coke stock when I was about six months old, set it to reinvest the dividends, and left it there. After 23 years, it has grown to quite a large position. I've been investing for a few years now with my own saved up money, but I have never known what to do with this massive position that has very low cost basis. Do I sell some of it and put it to work elsewhere? Let it sit and continue to reinvest? There isn't a ton of growth opportunity, but it pays a nice dividend each quarter. Yeah, I think this is a great problem. I think. <laughs> yeah, oh, I got <laughs> what a ton awesome. of money. Right. <laughs> so <Right>. frustrating. <laughs> um, I think you really have to answer how big your personal risk tolerance is. So, my personal standard is that I don't want any one position to be greater than 20% of my portfolio. So, even for a relatively uh, stable blue chip company like Coca Cola, there is inherent risk in having one stock account for so much of your personal wealth. Um, but that is sort of a a personal estimate that you have to sort of figure out. Um, and then from there, I think you have to think about what your goals are. So, are you looking for high returns? Are you looking for low volatility? Are you looking for just market performance? And um, you can get a sense of expected returns from Coca Cola based on growth expectations plus your dividend return. And then I would suggest trimming your position down to better fit your overall return goals. So, again, I can't really know that for you. But I think I would suggest not selling at all, but rather thinking about trimming over time, assuming you have a better use for that capital. So, um, either other stocks that maybe better fit your defined goal. And I do think it's worth mentioning that I think you could make the case that you take no action on it. And if you're continuing to add money to your portfolio and not adding to Coca Cola, it will eventually decline as a percentage of your overall portfolio. Um, personally, that probably wouldn't be my choice, but I could. Think that that would be a um, viable strategy. You talk about how it has a very low cost basis, which you're basically implying is you don't want to trim it because you're going to have to pay taxes on it. Um, and, and I'm always a little um, I th taxes should always be factored into that. But it, as Abby said, if if it gets too big of a part of your portfolio, I wouldn't let taxes stop me from doing that. So it's important to realize that we are at very, very low tax rates right now. Right. So given your particular tax bracket, it actually may not be that big of a deal to pay those taxes. And then the final thing is you've been reinvesting those dividends. Every time you reinvest those dividends, you have some more. shares with a different cost basis. 
So if you are you don't want to tr- you do want to trim it, but you don't want to pay a lot of taxes this year, you can identify the shares that you bought more recently that have a higher tax that have a higher cost basis. That so that way you won't pay as much in taxes. All right, and the last question comes from Brandon. I had the investor shares of the Vanguard 500 fund, ticker VFINX, but they were automatically converted to a different share class, ticker VFIAX. And I have no idea why. Do you know why this happened? Well, this is just Vanguard being Vanguard. Um, Vanguard. Basically, the difference between investment shares and the other shares, which are known as their admiral shares, is their admiral shares are lower cost. And it used to be that you had to have a certain amount of money either in that fund or with Vanguard to get these lower cost shares. But then Vanguard recently just decided we want more people to have these lower cost shares. So they automatically move people from the higher cost shares, which are just even the higher cost ones were just 14 basis points, to these lower cost shares, which are now four basis points. Whoa. So, yeah. Okay. So it's crazy low. And it's again, it's just Vanguard is constantly doing all it can to keep costs low for. Its shareholders. Um, I will say, as a Vanguard shareholder, and I don't, and this may have been my own fault. I'm not sure they communicated this particularly well. It came as a surprise to me. Again, maybe it was my fault, and I just missed the email or something like that. Um, so I, that's why I brought this up because I think it's happened to a lot of people, and they didn't even know it happened. It's such a nice surprise, though, too. You think they'd want to make a big deal out of right, it, right? Exactly. Um, and the other question people have about it is that a taxable event if mm. they're moving from one fund to another? And the answer is. No, when they're just putting you in a different share class, it is not a taxable event. Abby, okay. thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Man, come back. This was fun. Uh, was it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Allison's not so convinced it was fun, but we're glad you no, enjoyed it. No, <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. We have fun. Um, Abby, thank you again. Please come back. Sweet. All right, let's head to the postcards, shall we? Let's do it. All right, so Eddie, as we know, is doing a 50-state tour. Have we talked about this? Eddie from Hawaii? Yes. Yeah, Eddie from Hawaii is doing a, him him and his family, at least his wife. I'm not sure if he's also doing with like his he's, I know he has a daughter. Um so they are driving across America and they might be coming by to say hi to us oh, at some point. I know, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So he sent one, two, three, four, what? five, six, seven, oh eight gosh. postcards from Yellowstone, which is where I'm gonna be in a couple weeks. Um here is uh, Glacier, somewhere in Glacier, Sedona, Sequoia National Park, the Idaho Potato Museum in Blackfoot, Idaho. I've been there. Uh, not to that museum, but I have been to Blackfoot, Idaho. And um, yeah, Nevada and another card from Montana. But So here's the thing, Eddie. Our address is 2000 Duke Street. And I know you put these in the mail before I corrected you in the last, in the last episode. <laughs> But whoever is at 200 Duke Street is getting real angry because they keep on doing more and more exclamation points and circling. <laughs> 2000 Duke Street. Anyway, I feel like I need to go to 200 Duke Street and just apologize. I wonder who that is. They're just jealous because they don't have someone sending up postcards all That's the time. That's true. All right. We also have a postcard from Brett from Kalispell, Montana. It's a big Montana month here on the show. Um, he sent a card uh, that came from his family trip to France. Uh, he drives a semi in Montana, and he says that we make him laugh out loud as he drives. And he's sending us sassy smokers, big hair, shoulder pads, loofahs, and special hugs. <laughs> uh, Kevin sent a card from the Calaveras County Fair Jumping Frog Jubilee. What? Did you know it was a real thing? I didn't. Apparently, the longest jump uh, was set in 1986 of 21 feet. 21 feet? Yeah, I don't know. Frogs, I don't know. Yikes. I don't know. 
I, got, I have no context for. I assume that's big. Oh, this is. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, I've, uh, now that I now that I see the this, I remember this. The yeah. Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I imagine Mark Twain's version didn't take place in California, right? Uh, no, it might because he was a he was a miner out there for a while. There you go. Yeah. Uh, also have one from. Do you do you say Thad or Tad? I say Thad. All right, Thad. Um, Thad sent us a lovely card, a great big card from the Caymans. Um, so pretty, and wanted to thank us again for the events um, life series, particularly the one on death and planning for the inevitable. The Rinaldi family sent a couple cards from Italy. Stocks! Um, they went to Cinque Terre and uh, Rome. I've never really been to Italy. I've been to Sicily, but that was it. Yeah, I need to go someday. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, and then also, David sent a card from Scotland, the Isle of Harris. Oh, that's pretty. Have you been to Scotland? I have. Um, so I went to school in England for a year, and w- for one of the breaks, about four girls and I hopped on a bus and we went up to Edinburgh. For Could a you understand while. what they were saying? I had so much trouble understanding what they yeah. were saying. It was in English. It was f- brilliant. <laughs> exactly. You can't say that. <laughs> you can say whatever he wants when you say it that way. Yeah, I guess that's true. No, I mean, I did. I think I did. I don't remember having a hard time, but I had already been in England for a while, so maybe that you helped had, get my ear adjusted. a little ready. Yeah. I once had a really hard time understanding a guy from New Zealand in Mexico. Um, <laughs> I literally couldn't understand a single thing he said. Um, and uh, that was hard. Yeah. But he was a sheep herder, so it was like, great. Cattle rancher. <laughs> of course, like, New Zealand Right sheep on brand. In like, so on brand. So, anyway, getting back to David in Scotland, um, he writes uh, that he's the greetings from the Outer Hebrides. He's a big fan and a former teacher of David G. Oh, wow. Uh, I have a feeling um, David G was like a really good student. I'm sure he was a very I'll good bet, student. I'll bet he doesn't have any good stories about David G from school. At least any sassy or scandalous nothing along those lines, that's for sure. No. No. He's a good guy, that David G. A little too good. (laughs) All right, that's the show! Wow, summer is drawing to an end, but um, of course, we'll take your postcards all year round. Our address is... 2000! 2000, Eddie, 2000. The person at 200 Duke Street is going to (laughs) come right to our door. Um... Yeah, so 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Also, if you have a question you want answered on the show, send it to answers at fool.com. The show is edited. Mm. I think I think the guy should actually start sending, a, at least send one postcard to whoever is at 200 Duke Street. Right? And right? be like, this is not for bro and Allison, this is for you. Yes. I don't know who's at. I need to look up who's Maybe we I can should, look up who's at. We should Duke look that up and go visit them. Send them a little something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the show is edited. You know, we've just said sassy for like twice in the last five minutes. I don't think we've ever said sassy once on the show. So we're just going to say the show's edited sassily by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.